from Paul's letter to the church of Jesus Christ among the Colossians. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or, in, or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts and our minds are too small to... To absorb everything that we've just read. It is so vast and the vision of your son is so enormous. Who he is, what he's done, who he remains uh, to be, the promises that you uh, make and will keep through him, even in this assembly this morning. They are so big and so vast. They are so beautiful. And Lord, one phrase that just stands out to me, which is that he would have first place in everything. And we know that that is your purpose for your son. And would you grant that by the Spirit, it would be ours as well. So for each of our lives, we pray that you would work now through your word by the Spirit to grant to Christ first place in everything about us. Father, for those who are already uh, your children and who are living and united already to this head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, I pray that for my brothers and sisters, we would be strengthened today to continue in the faith, to be steadfast and firmly established, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And for those who entered this room, not yet united to Christ, still alienated from you and hostile in mind towards you, engaged in evil deeds. Father, would you grant that this would be the day of their salvation. Open their eyes to see that in Christ you have reconciled sinners to yourself in his fleshly body through his death. Grant them new life on this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, um, if you begin with the wrong question... 
the likelihood that you will ever get to the right answer is, of course, very small. And nowhere is that more important than on Easter Sunday. It's very important to have the right question on Easter Sunday in focus. The, the wrong question is, on Easter Sunday, the wrong question is, how can God be right with us? In other words, how can God justify himself to us? How can he uh, answer all of our objections, satisfy all our curiosity, um, remove all room for faith, explain himself in such a way to us that we will agree that he is justified? Now, it's the wrong question. That would actually turn the universe on its head because he is God and we're not. So God doesn't have to prove anything to anybody this morning. The right question is not how God can be right with us, but how we can be right with God. That's the question that Easter celebrates the answer to. And that answer is in Jesus Christ. It's a glorious answer. It's the answer that Easter celebrates. It's the answer that is in focus in this table. It's the heart of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is the answer to that question. That question, how can a, a sinner, how can man be right with a holy God? That question doesn't hang in the air this morning. God has answered it definitively in Jesus Christ. So if you came in wondering about that question, I am so happy to be able to tell you there's an answer. And the answer is not inside of you. It's outside of you. It's in what God has done through His Son for sinners just like you and me. And the the opportunity that God presents each of us today is to cast ourselves in repentance and faith upon Christ. And the peace that God has made through the death of His Son and the proof of that peace in the resurrection of His Son, that really is the message this morning, is to cast yourself upon Christ by faith, to know that answer to that question and to leave here knowing that because you're in Christ, you are right with God. I'm not going to sit down yet, though. But that is the message. And we're going to look at the answer and how it unfolds from this passage through three questions, which you might, when you first hear them or see them, you might think that they are a joke, and they're not. They're deadly serious questions. Each one of them brings into focus a contrast that will help us sort through the truth from the falsity of Easter. And the first question is, how is the gospel of Jesus Christ different from Star Wars? The second one is, how is Jesus Christ different from the Large Hadron Collider? Which I will explain what it is if you don't know what that is. And then finally, how is Jesus Christ different from George Washington? So first question, how is the gospel of Jesus Christ different from Star Wars? Well, there are some similarities, aren't there? I mean, in both, you have uh, an account, a description of the defeat of evil by good forces. In both, you have an enslaving power that hangs over an entire galaxy and that burdens people and enslaves them. And in both, you have the celebration of the joy of liberation, don't you? So in that sense, they're the same, but... The real heart of the matter is they're very different because one is a good story and the other is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a good story. It's good news. 
And we instinctively know the difference between a good story and good news, don't we? I mean, imagine if I burst into this room right now and at the top of my lungs said, I have such good news for you. The Death Star has been destroyed. The Emperor has been defeated. And the Ewoks are dancing in their treehouses. Now, if I said that to you, and I said that that was good news, you would look at me and say, uh, we need to take you to the doctor. Right? But the gospel is not a story. It's news. And the difference between a story and news is that a story is imagined events and news is reported events. Events that actually happened in history. So I just want the deck to be clear at the beginning this morning. When we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are celebrating not some metaphor, not, not some symbol of spring and the seasons. What we are celebrating this morning is the actual, historical, bodily, physical resurrection of a man from the dead and its implications. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. The gospel is news. What it is, is the reporting, the announcement, the declaration of what God has done. This is important. The gospel is news in this sense. It is the announcement, the declaration of what God has done in Jesus Christ, his son, for sinners to reconcile them to himself. The gospel is not a self-help regime. It is the announcement of what God has done. It is historical, meaning that everything about Christianity, absolutely everything about Christianity, hinges on this one fact. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that did not happen, there is no Christianity. Not even a shred is left. So the question becomes, then, how do you evaluate historical events? Well, we do it all the time, don't we? In other realms, we do this all the time. And there's basically two kinds of evidence that you evaluate things through. One is what's called direct evidence. Here's your little law school lesson. One is direct evidence, and the other is circumstantial evidence. And those are very different kinds of evidence, but we, we know how to evaluate them even if we don't know the names. Now, direct evidence, in this case, is about eyewitness testimony. I did not see Jesus rise physically from the dead. So why am I asserting with confidence that Jesus did physically rise from the dead? Because I have the account of witnesses on which I rely, which I have evaluated, which I regard as trustworthy, which have proven true, not only historically, but also in experience, not only in my life, but in the lives of many. And when you have witness-based testimony, there are basically three ways you evaluate that. Number one, did the witness have the opportunity to observe the events that he or she is reporting? Were they in the right place at the right time? Number two, even if they did have the opportunity to observe, is there some impairment or lack of ability about the witness that would prevent them from rightly interpreting what they saw? That could be, you know, the witness could be in the right place in the right time, but they could be blind. So they're not going to be able to report what they saw, right? Or they might have some kind of mental impairment, which is what is commonly 
commonly surmised or argued about the disciples. And the third thing is, does the witness have a motive to lie? Those are the three main ways that you evaluate eyewitness testimony. Now think about, think about this with respect to the resurrection of Christ. What we have is a series of reports from witnesses that are in writing of the resurrected Christ appearing to them. Did the witnesses, did the apostles and the disciples have the opportunity to observe that? Yes, no one disputes that. What about the second factor that they were, uh, perhaps, did they have, a, was the clarity of their perception under any impairment? I mean, either physically or mentally. Well, now here's the, here's the difficulty there. There were a lot of witnesses of the resurrection. I mean, there were at least 500 just in one incident that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's say we had 600 total witnesses. That's a conservative number to the resurrected Christ. That second factor, were they under some kind of impairment that would prevent them from actually seeing the risen Christ? That's very easy to raise as an objection when you're talking about one or two people. But when you're talking about at least 500 people, it's, it, it strains credulity to conclude that you had 500 people who simultaneously suffered mental breakdowns or some kind of inability to perceive. That's a very important fact. What about the third factor? Would the witnesses have had a motive to lie? Well, you might say, sure, they had a motive to lie. Jesus had said before he was crucified that he was going to be raised on the third day. And the disciples knew that the credibility of their Lord depended on his resurrection. So maybe they stole the body and hid it in order to at least create the possibility of this story of his resurrection circulating. Well, now think about that for a minute. If hiding the body would have resulted in their being promoted to the highest levels of, of Israel or would not have resulted in persecution and imprisonment and in punishment and the loss of property and the breakup of their, of their families and untold sufferings. Well, then, if it wasn't going to result in that, you could see that they would have a motive to lie. But friends, for them to assert that Jesus was raised meant that all those things happened to them meant that they were martyred, meant that they were imprisoned, meant that they suffered, meant that their families were broken up, meant that they lost their jobs, meant that they lost their properties. And when somebody makes holds to testimony against their own personal interest, that is an incredibly important indicator of the truthfulness of the testimony. And it wasn't just one person. It wasn't just two persons. It was thousands of people. And so what you're left with is the direct evidence is very strong. What about the other category of evidence, circumstantial evidence? Well, that's very strong, too. What is circumstantial evidence? Well, circumstantial evidence is indirect evidence. So, for example, I, um, I don't actually see you rob the bank, but I'm walking on the street and I see you come out of the bank running with bags of money in your hand. Now, I didn't see you... Go up to the teller and say, you know, your money or your life or anything like that. But you're coming out of the bank with two bags of money. Now, the circumstances are such that a reasonable person looking at that would say, you ought to talk to that person about being a suspect. And the circumstantial evidence of the resurrection, the key circumstantial evidence 
is where's the body? Where, where is the body of Jesus Christ? I mean, unless, unless either of two things are true, and those two things are this, unless e- either you have personally witnessed the decomposing body of Jesus Christ, Or two, you know to a certainty where the bones of Jesus' body are. Unless either you've seen the decomposing body with your own two eyes, or two, you know where the bones of Jesus' body are, and you've seen them, and you're confident that those are Jesus' bones. Unless both of those things are true, or either of those things are true, then for you to not believe in the resurrection of Christ means that you are crediting certain categories of evidence at the expense of other categories of evidence. You are saying, I believe the, the, the argument that Christ was not raised, and I don't believe the argument and the evidence that he was raised. But you're doing that without having seen the decomposing body and without knowing where the bones of Jesus are. And theologians have a technical term for that. It's called faith. So to disbelieve in the resurrection of Christ is an act of faith. About history. Now the wonderful thing is that God loves to shower his grace upon skeptics. And I am evidence of that. But why I begin the sermon this way is because I want you to see that God calls your mind to him. God gave your mind to you. And he expects you to wield it for his glory. And he expects you to look at facts, to think hard about them, to draw conclusions from them, and to commit yourself to the truth that those facts carry you to. And that's because the gospel is historical. And the wonderful thing about that, friends, is that we're historical. I mean, if the gospel were simply a fable or some kind of proverb that just hung out in the air, that was some kind of mystical kind of principle, it would do us no good because I and you are concrete, embodied people who live in the real world and we have real needs. I have real sins. They're not a theory and neither are yours. And so if there's going to be hope for us, there has to be a real historical answer. It will not do for the realms of heaven where God is and earth where man is not to come into contact. It will not do for those to remain separate if there's to be any hope for us. And the gospel bridges those where God, the creator of all things, literally breaks in and from the realm of heaven acts in the history that he owns and that he made for the redemption of sinners like you and me. And did you look at the riches in our passage? Just absolutely amazing. You notice in verses 13 through 20, we have this, we're like in the Himalayas. If the Himalayas had Himalayas, it would be in Colossians 1. And in verses 13 through 20, this is some of the highest Christology. It may be the highest Christology in the New Testament. It is such a sweeping vision of God's purpose 
to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Just massively huge things. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The Son of God is the firstborn from the dead. God's goal in history is that the Son of God is going to have first place in everything. And then do you notice all of a sudden, Paul then takes all of that massive truth and then he applies it to real people in verse 21. You notice that? I love that transition. This is the gospel. You go from that massive glory of Christ, which is too big for any human brain. I mean, if we could absorb uh, verses 13 through 20, our heads would explode. Those are the biggest things that could possibly be said in the universe. And then all of a sudden, now in verse 21, he moves down into real people and he says, and although you, he's talking about real people in a real church in Colossae. He says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he, God, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? Look at the purpose that God has in the gospel. The, the purpose, there, there are two purposes that God has as, as, as you are being summoned by God this morning through the word. What you need to know is there's a foundation for that summons, which is the life, death and resurrection of Christ in history. That that the, the reporting of those events which God initiated and which God accomplished, those are the foundation that we stand on, that the church is built on, that all hope for reconciliation with God is built on. So there's that foundation. And yet God has two purposes that grow out of that foundation. Why is it that he did those things in Christ? Number one, to reconcile you now. Present reconciliation, verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Would it, would it change you to know that God that God was looking upon you this morning when you entered this room and that the intention of his heart, the top of his heart for you, was that you would be reconciled to him? Of all the things to know about God, to begin there, That's the first purpose. You experience reconciliation with God now in the present, but it doesn't end there because there's a future purpose too that is built on the foundation of what Christ has done. That is why the gospel is good news. And it is the future direction that he will carry you toward in Christ. And that is in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, totally beyond reproach. Reproach can't even see you if you are in Christ. And that's God's purpose this morning. Oh, that's awesome. It doesn't get any better than that. The gospel is good news. So the difference between Star Wars and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that one is a good story. But the gospel is good news and calls for your response and mine as well of faith. You notice all of that depends on responding in faith, in repentance and faith, as Paul makes very clear in verse 23, to enter into that reconciliation, to be transformed by the, peace of, by the work of Christ, to enjoy peace with God, and to have that future hope of standing before God, being presented by Christ 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach, all of that is available, but on one condition. It is not automatic. Do you notice verse 23? You see that if at the beginning? If, indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. You have to believe and you have to keep believing. So there's a call of faith. A call to entrust yourself to Christ this morning. The news is good news only when you respond in faith to it. Second question. How is Jesus Christ different from the Large Hadron Collider? Well, you've got to know what the Large Hadron Collider is in order to answer that, don't you? Did you guys see that in the news this week? It's a big deal in the news. At least the part of the news that I look at. This is that super collider over in Europe that is like the, the iPad of particle physics research now. It's the darling of particle physics research. And just this week, it's, a, it's this 17 mile, you know, I've talked about this before, but just because it's so much fun to talk about, I'm going to remind you. It's this 17 mile long tunnel under, under the ground outside Geneva, Switzerland. And just this week, they successfully uh, had two protons collide in this thing. That made your week, didn't it? Well, one of the physicists, I read, one of the physicists said, hey, you've got to understand what a big deal this is. This is like shooting a needle from one side of the Atlantic at the same time that another needle is launched from the other side of the Atlantic and having those two needles hit head on right over the middle of the Atlantic. And when I heard that, I thought, that's impressive. And what they're trying to do there is they are trying to, what they want to do is they want to smash protons. And when they blow them up, what they want to do is they want to study the debris because they're thinking that if they take the proton, which is very small, and they smash it up and other things, hadrons are subatomic particles. Take that home. Okay. When they smash hadrons up, then there's going to, they think they're going to get down to the smaller building blocks of, of, of ultimate reality. That's what they're after. They're after trying to see what the most basic building blocks of ultimate reality are. And so here's, here's where the Large Hadron Collider and Jesus Christ have something, in, or at least our passage, have something in common. Both are quests, as it were, to know ultimate reality. They have that in common, but what our passage shows us very dramatically is that ultimate reality in the universe that God has made is not particles, but personhood. You notice how Paul just, just is, is emphasizing with such passion that ultimately the ground of everything, ultimate reality for the Christian what God reveals in His Word, ultimate reality is not matter. It's not stuff. It's a person. And ultimately, if you don't know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you don't know that all things were created by Him, 
All things were sustained through him and all things are created for him. If you don't know that and you don't, this is an implication of what Paul is saying. I mean, the implications could not be any bigger. He's saying, unless you understand that the universe that you inhabit and unless you respond in faith to this truth, that everything that is exists because the Son of God created it, because the Son of God sustains it and it exists for the Son of God. Unless you know those things, the best that you can do, whether you have 63 PhDs in protons or the best super collider in the world, the best you can ever know about the universe or your own life, you're just scratching the surface. That's an implication of what Paul is saying there. You can't know ultimate reality either about the physical universe or about your own life unless you know that everything is grounded in the Son of God. Now, that is a big statement that Paul is making. Jesus Christ is not only at the center of reality, He is the center of ultimate reality, according to Paul here. And Paul shows us that in three ways. Number one, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. I'll unpack that in a minute. Two, he says he's the firstborn from the dead. And then he says... It's the Father's plan that he would have first place in everything. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, what it doesn't mean is that he was created, that the Son of God was created. That's not what that term firstborn means. What it means is that he's the heir. He's the firstborn son. He's entitled to receive the inheritance from the father. That's a statement about privilege, not about the fact that he was created. And the way we know that that's the right reading of that is you just have to read verses 16 and 17. In verse 15, he's called the firstborn of all creation. And so you might say, well, that means, and this is what Jehovah's Witnesses will say, by the way. That means, firstborn means he was born. Which means he's great, he's first, but he's still created. And you just have to read the next verses to know that that's not what Paul means. Because look, okay, he's firstborn of all creation. Test now. Read context. For by him all things were created. There goes that interpretation. Both in the heavens and on earth. All things were created in all the realms of the universe. Heavens, earth... Visible and invisible, doesn't matter whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, every category of thing or authority, visible or invisible, all things have been created through him and for him. For him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Clearly can't have been created. It means that he's the heir. And notice the three Big things that are being said about him. Everything is from him. That means the Son of God is the creator of all things. And because Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the the Son of God incarnate, these things that are being celebrated by Paul about the Son are true about the Jesus who was raised and is at the Father's right hand this morning. Okay? So all things are from him. Verse 16 is the creator of all things. And Paul... describes it as comprehensively as possible, so nothing is left out. All things, heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, it's all made by Him. It all comes from Him. And verse 17, it's all created through Him. 
And, and verse uh, 18, excuse me, verse 17, he's in him all things hold together. That means not only did he make everything, but everything holds together in him. In other words, unless he was actively involved, not just in creating the universe, but sustaining it, it would not exist. Now that has implications for your life. Because what it means is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is at the center of every big question you ask in life. Your whole life holds together in Him. Whether or not you give Him permission to do that. It is what it means for Him to be the Son of God, that He would be the one who... At the Father's direction and according to the Father's plan, carried out that plan, created all things, sustains them now, preserves the universe and preserves everything in the universe, including my own life, your life. There's an urgency that flows out of that to know him, isn't there? I mean, if that were true about your life, if you looked at your marriage and said, my marriage holds together in Jesus Christ. My work holds together in Jesus Christ. My mind, the life of my mind, holds together in Jesus Christ. This is God's purpose for my mind. This is God's purpose for my work and my health, my family. It's God's, pur- it's God's purpose. My future holds together in Jesus Christ. All these things, it's as comprehensively and as broadly stated as possible. This Son of God who is alive and who is living, all things belong to Him. And all things are for Him. That's the goal God has ordained. That the Son of God would have first place in everything. He's the firstborn from the dead, too, which is our focus on Easter Sunday. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that, that's an amazing statement. It means three things. It means that the Son lived as a man. It means that the Son died as a man. It means that the Son rose from the dead. I mean, yeah, rose from the dead as a man as well. And it's just amazing to think about that, that Son who's described in verses 15 Uh, through 17, the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. He created everything. He sustains everything. Everything's for him. And this son of God became incarnate and was allowed himself to be enclosed in a virgin's womb and was born and raised by parents who were sinners and didn't always teach him or live the right things. And he was humbled under their authority and obeyed the law of God and grew up in obscurity. And day in and day out, minute in, minute out, hour in, hour out, lived the life that you and I were designed by God to live but never did. This one so massive and huge for whom the whole universe is designed and exists, he humbled himself. Why? To save sinners like you and me. It's an amazing thing. What love would... What love would motivate him to do that? 
What kind of love? What, what measure of grace can you ascribe to that? And then not only that he lived as a man, it would have been amazing alone if he had just lived as a man and come and shown us his love. But that, that, that the purpose of that perfect life was to perfect a sacrifice that would be blameless that he could then offer to the Father on our behalf at his cross. So that he could purchase the peace with God that you and I never could. And that would be amazing as well if it was just those two things, that this massive Son of God lived as a man and then died as a man. The one in whom all the fullness dwells, verse 19 says, and the Father's pleased for that to be the case. I mean, the Father wants all the fullness to dwell in the Son and with all possessing all the fullness, not just to live life that we should have lived, but then to go in our place to the cross and in having all that fullness dwelling in Him to offer Himself as a substitute and a sacrifice for us so that we might go free and might be reconciled to God and enjoy peace with Him. That. Is amazing. He enters creation as a conqueror. He enters death as a conqueror. And then he exits death as a conqueror. He rises from the dead. That's what Paul is celebrating when he calls him the firstborn from the dead. He enters death as a conqueror. And it's such an interesting phrase, firstborn from the dead. That means firstborn not over the dead. It's from the dead. Prepositions matter, right? From the dead means he was in death and from the inside of death. He just didn't avoid death. He didn't outsmart death. He went into death, ripped its heart out, and rose from the dead. It's conquest that the resurrection is a picture of. And triumph and evidence of the peace that God has obtained for us through his Son. It's an awesome vision. And in all of this, he is going to have first place. This is the Jesus who offers himself to you and to me. This is the Jesus this morning who presents himself to us, who calls for our faith. This is the Jesus who takes sinners who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind toward God and engaged in evil deeds and then acts out of his grace and power to to take us who are in rebellion against God and by his power to change us and to put us into a place of reconciliation. That is who Jesus is. Firstborn over all creation, firstborn from the dead, and the one who has first place in everything. So, as a non-Christian, that is your opportunity this morning, is that you would be reconciled to Christ. That you would respond to ultimate reality this morning, who is the Son of God, whom God sent into the world for you. Sinners like you and sinners like me. And for Christians, we're being called, we're being called this morning by this very same text to continue in the faith. Right? We're being called to, to persevere in the faith, to remain steadfast, to not move away. There's two ways that Paul says it here. It's positive and negative. We're to remain steadfast, firmly established in the faith, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so God intends to renew us in that knowledge of Christ this morning as well. Which brings us to the final question, which is, what is the difference between Jesus Christ and George Washington? You might regard that as a silly question, but I, I raise it to make a point and 
to open up one more critical implication of the resurrection of Christ. And it's this. What it means to be a Christian is is to be in living fellowship with a person who is alive. You see, George Washington and Jesus Christ do have some similarities. Both Both were historical people, unlike the characters in Star Wars, right? Both were historical figures whose lives uh, bequeathed quite a heritage to each of us in this room. We benefit from them tremendously. But the glaring uh, difference between them is especially evident at Easter and as we look at this table. And it is the reality of a relationship is possible and is experienced and enjoyed with Jesus Christ. And it is not with George Washington. You and I could learn a lot about George Washington. We could go to Mount Vernon every day for the next thousand years and knock on the front door. We could read a biography of George Washington. We could memorize every fact about his life. We could know everything there is to know about George Washington, but we can never know him. We can never have a relationship with George Washington. Because he has been prevented by death from remaining with us. But Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And those things that are not true about George Washington are true about Jesus Christ. Such knowledge of Jesus is available. And it's available this morning. This table is not a memorial table where we look and memory and great love upon one who's dearly departed and who we can't have fellowship with anymore. This is a table of communion. Where the risen Lord himself meets with his people and gives himself to his people. Where this, this great Savior, this firstborn over all creation, this firstborn from the dead, the one who is going to receive first place in everything from God, where he gives himself to his people. Because he is alive. And because what it means to be reconciled to God is to have fellowship with him through Jesus This is no ordinary table. Remember how I mentioned before that it would not do for God, for the realms of heaven and earth to remain estranged and separate from one another so that what's going to happen there? Is man going to climb up to God? Can't happen. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that God has come down in the person and work of Christ and again for his people through the sacrament of the Lord's table. The the table is two things, friends. Two ways to meet the risen Lord at this table this morning. Number one, this table is his picture for us. This is a table, which means that it is a place of shared intimacy and fellowship. That's what that signifies. It's also a meal, which is a a place where we receive nourishment where our life is sustained, where we are given something that we need by a host. And it is the place where we take in what we need and it literally becomes part of us. This is a picture of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, to be that close 
to him, to have him give himself to us for us to receive life from him and for his life to be in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. But his table is also a promise to us because the word, though the word is not weak, our faith is, right? My faith is so weak. And when you look at a passage like Colossians 1 with these things being said about Jesus that are just so big, it makes my brain want to break. How can I possibly take in the fact that the firstborn of all creation has given his life not only for me, but to me, in me? And that I am now connected with him and that as God's word says, he is in me and I am in him. That is a great mystery to me. My faith is weak, friends. How about yours? Can you take all that in? But the table is a promise. It's Jesus' promise to us that though our faith is weak, his reality is not. And if we have a handle, his promise to us is that if we have a handle, if we grasp that bread and that cup, his promise is that we have laid hold of him. So that pictures fellowship with him, the risen Lord, and it pictures having him and being in relationship with him. We do not receive a better Christ at this table, but what we receive is a better grasp of the same Christ. So I invite you, all who are weary and heavy laden, to come and receive a better grasp of the same Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning. These are wonders that are too great for any human mind or heart to take in fully. But we trust you that you have stooped down and come in the person of your Son and again will come this morning by the Spirit to feed your children and to draw the weary and heavy laden to him. This is what we desire. We pray it in Jesus' name.